All right, let's go in our Bibles tonight, if you would, to Psalm 144, the 144th Psalm, a Psalm of David, a Psalm exclaiming about God's blessings and asking for God's further blessing of provision and protection in his life. Some think that this psalm was written after one of the significant victories that God gave to David over the Philistines. That is possible, although the text doesn't indicate exactly when it was written. Psalm 144, verse number 1, the Bible says, Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him, or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. Bow thy heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out thine arrows and destroy them. Send thine hand from above. Rid me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God. Upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto thee. It is he that giveth salvation unto kings, who delivereth David his servant from the hurtful sword. Rid me and deliver me from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in nor going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. I've titled the message tonight, Happy people, happy people whose God is the Lord. Certainly, David seems to be quite enchanted with the God of heaven. He himself has experienced the blessing of God in his life, and he's crying out to God yet again, asking for God to continue blessing him. There are echoes of Psalm 8 heard in Psalm 144, and there are many similarities, although there are also some distinct differences. But David is clearly writing from a position of thanksgiving. He's grateful for what God has done. Particularly in the first two verses, he exudes an exclamation of praise. He is excited about what God has done for him. And so he says, blessed be the Lord. What a thought that is, that you and I have the opportunity to bless the one who blesses. 
How is it that we could bless the Lord? Well, the one primary way that we can bless the Lord is by giving Him our heartfelt praise and thanksgiving. There's nothing else that God needs or desires, really, because He has everything in Himself that He needs to exist, but He does enjoy receiving our praise. And so David says, blessed be the Lord. I think sometimes as believers, it's good to be reminded that instead of always asking for blessing from God, we have the opportunity to bless Him with our worship and our praise. And we ought to take that opportunity in our prayer life. So he says, blessed be the Lord. And then he says something really interesting. The Lord is my strength which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. And that means exactly what it sounds like. David was a great warrior. He was a man who was accustomed to the use of the sword and the spear. And we know that even as a boy, he was experienced with the sling. And he attributed his success as a warrior in battle to God teaching his hands to war and his fingers to fight. There is a time and place to fight, and we need God's strength when that time comes. And of course, David is speaking in a very literal and physical sense, but I want to remind you tonight that we have an enemy, the enemy of our souls, and if we're going to be successful in our warfare against this enemy, we need for God to teach our hands to war and our fingers to fight. We need him to be our defender. And that's why David said in verse 1, the Lord is my strength. Notice, not only does God give strength, which he certainly does, but he says it differently in verse 1. He says, the Lord is my strength. There is great strength that is found in the person of the Lord. All the ability that we need for our Christian life, all of the enabling that we need to walk with the Lord. All of it is found in the Lord, my strength. Now he goes on in verse 2, and he describes the Lord who is his strength, the one who has taught him to fight. And he uses a number of descriptive terms to describe how God has ministered to him and blessed him. First of all, in verse 2, he calls God his goodness. He is my goodness. And what he's referring to there is the mercy and the faithfulness of God. Specifically, he's referring to the long-suffering of God, the, 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 the ability that God has to treat us with loving kindness. And when you think about it tonight, where would you and I be without the goodness of the Lord? Without God's mercy being shown towards us, where would we be? In fact, David is recognizing that the victory which he has just enjoyed is the result of God's goodness. It is the the result of God's mercy. In like manner, if you and I enjoy victory in our spiritual life, it is because of the goodness of the Lord. So he says the Lord is his goodness, but then he also, in verse 2, says the Lord is my fortress. Now, a fortress is a strong place of defense. It's a lot stronger than the forts that my kids build. My, My two youngest boys are into building forts right now. And so every piece of available lumber, pallets, tarps, anything that they can scavenge with or without permission ends up on the fort. 
and they're very proud of their fort, but the truth is their fort wouldn't do a whole lot of good under attack from an enemy. But when David speaks about the fortress that God is, you understand that when God is your fortress, that is a strong place of defense. That is a place that is impenetrable, a place where you are protected. And that is certainly what David felt. He goes on and he describes God as my high tower. The high tower usually was found inside of the fortress. So the fortress would be the outer walls. The high tower would be on the inside and it would give a vantage point to be able to attack the enemy from within that place of defense, that place that was strong and safe. The high tower was a place that was lifted out of the range of the attacks of the enemy and gave the opportunity to rain down an attack upon them. And he says, God is the one who has lifted me up. He's my high tower. Not only that, in verse 2, he is my deliverer. And, And the idea of this word, God is my deliverer, it means that God is the one who brings me out and causes me to escape. He's the one who provides a way of escape or a way of deliverance from the enemy that is after me. Not only that, he is my shield. And the shield here, of course, is speaking about that which protects the soldier from the attack of the sword or the spear or the arrows that might come. And the Lord is, he himself is my shield, the protection from the attack. David has experienced all of these things And so he says in verse 2, and he in whom I trust. Because God has been all these things to him, David expresses that he has learned to trust the Lord. Might I suggest to you tonight that it would be of great benefit to us if we would learn to trust the Lord, to put our confidence in him And not in our own abilities, our own strengths, our own ingenuity, our own plan, but instead to put our confidence in the one in whom we should trust. David adds one more detail in verse 2 as he speaks about what God has done for him as he says, who subdueth my people under me. And the idea here is that David is recognizing the fact that he has been given the position of king, the position of authority by the Lord. God has put him in that place of leadership. And we know that David was a good and godly king. He was a king who loved his people, who cared about leading them into truth. And we know that the children of Israel were uniquely blessed under the kingship of David. But David recognized that that authority, that place, that position that was given to him came from God himself. And so he is exclaiming praise to God mostly praise for God's protection, but also praise for the way that God has blessed him uniquely in giving him a position of authority. But then in verses 3 and 4, we find, second of all, his expression of unworthiness. So David, first of all, exclaimed his praise, but then in verse 3 and 4, and here we especially hear the echoes of Psalm 8, David expresses his own unworthiness, and and not just his own unworthiness, but the unworthiness of man in general. And he asked that question, Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? And I ask you tonight, in the grand scope of creation, 
and the immense power of God, what is the significance of man? If we really think about how small we are and how minuscule we are, now we're pretty good at puffing ourselves up and making a big to-do about how important we are, but the truth is we're not that important. We're not that significant, except for the fact that God has specially designed us and has put his attention on us. And so the psalmist is caught up with this thought, and he asks this question again, what is man? Despite man's seeming insignificance, God has declared man to be important. God delights, think about this, God delights in knowing you and I, and God delights in thinking upon us. That's what it means when it says there in verse number three, the son of man that thou makest account of him. That phrase, makest account of him, means that God takes thought upon us. That's that's an incredible thing. Out of the eight billion people on this earth, God thinks about you and he thinks about me. That's, a, that's an incredible, incredible truth. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus told us that the very hairs of our head are numbered. The ability of God to know us and to think upon each one of us is truly astounding, especially when we think about how small we are in relation to the God who has made us. And so he's brought to a place where he asks, Lord, what is man? Uh, What is it that causes you to, to pay such attention to man? He's in particular thinking of himself. Lord, why would you think about me? Why would you put your attention upon me? Why would you notice me? Why would you uh, prepare a special task for me? What is man? Now, he answers his question in part in verse 4, and especially that which causes him to ask the question, what is man, is, is the... The, the fragility of man. And so he, he puts it this way in verse 4, man is like to vanity, his days are as a shadow that passeth away. So two thoughts here. First of all, he says that man is like to vanity. And, and what that means is that aside from the declaration of God, man is worthless. Man has no value apart from God's value that he has placed upon him. Now, I know at first, at, at, you know, at first you might think, oh, that's really offensive. Why are you saying that, Pastor? Because it's the truth. In, in the grand scope of history, in the, in the grand scope of the universe, if you think about all that is, we are very insignificant, which is why he says man is like to vanity. Our greatest contribution, apart from God's enabling is nothing of true eternal value. We could could build great buildings. So what? One day those buildings are going to crumble and fall. We could come up with some great scientific attainment. We could solve the, the problems that are facing mankind. But the question is, what difference does it make if there is no eternal value in it? So apart from the Lord... There's very little that man can contribute that is of value. Our strength and our ability is so minuscule and so small that the psalmist says we are like to vanity. And then he reminds us in verse 4, 
His days are as a shadow that passeth away. A shadow that passes away. Think about how quickly a shadow flees. There's some shadows up here because of the lights. And just as I'm standing here, there's a shadow in front of me. All that has to happen for that shadow to be gone is for me to step away. As soon as the light comes into that place, the shadow is gone. And that's the description that he uses to describe our days. They're like a shadow that passes. Our life is short. It's here and then it's gone. Our strength is weak. The strongest among us cannot preserve our own life. Just earlier this week, was it Monday? Monday night? A strong, fit, young football player fell on the field and all of a sudden in our country everyone realized life is fragile and at this point I think he's still alive and hanging by a thread and the doctors are trying to help him but you understand that no matter how strong and able you are no matter how healthy and how you exercise your life is a fragile thing And the psalmist steps back from this as he's thinking about the eternal God, the omnipotent God, and he's reminded, in in contrast to that, I am weak, my best efforts are vain, Lord, why would you think upon me? So he's expressing his unworthiness. But it's not doom and gloom and despair, because he quickly, in verse 5, follows up this expression of unworthiness with an entreaty for God to come down. So despite the fact that man is weak, and man's days are short, and man's best contributions are feeble and cannot impact eternity, the psalmist is very much aware that God does take thought of him. That God does care and that God has ascribed value to him. And so he says in verse 4, he utters this incredible prayer, Bow thy heavens, O Lord, and come down. What is he asking? He's asking for God to condescend to man and come down to show his strength on behalf of this man of God. He's saying, Lord, I know that I'm nothing. I know that I'm not that valuable, but I also know that you think upon me and that you care for me And I need you to work on my behalf. So bow down thy heavens. And the whole picture there is of humility and condescension. And you understand how for God to come to man, that's a great step. That's a step that you and I could not take from where we are to where he is. But he has come from where he is to where we are to bring us into a place of fellowship with him. The psalmist is asking for the Lord to come down and to work for him. He describes the work that he is, de- that he is desiring in, in verse number 5 when he asks God to touch the mountains and they shall smoke. What he's, I, I think what he's describing is a volcano. And he's asking for God to unleash the incredible power that even ancient man was familiar with When a mountain is smoking and when it starts erupting lava, landscapes are changed. Man is powerless to divert the the lava flows or to somehow control what is taking place in the bowels of the mountain. 
man can observe and can predict and, and can say, well, I think this is what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, the mountain is going to do whatever God allows the mountain to do. And the psalmist says, God, I want you to unleash that kind of power on my behalf, the kind of power that, that is irresistible by man. Not only does he want God to evidence his power like is seen in the volcano, but then he says in verse 6, cast forth lightning and scatter them. Light, a good lightning storm. That'll get your attention, won't it? There's, there's been, uh, every once in a while, we'll have a good lightning storm around here. Not much like the ones that we observed when we lived in the Midwest. You saw some real crazy lightning storms out there. Uh, but, boy, that's something when the lightning starts cracking and all of a sudden a tree is hit or the ground is hit and you realize the power that is found in, in that one bolt of lightning is impossible for man to harness. Actually, if we could figure out how to harness that, we would solve all of our energy problems. We, we would not need to generate power anymore. If we could just get the lightning... And, and gather that up and say, okay, now we're going to use that for something. But that's an evidence of God's power. And he describes it in verse 6 as God casting forth lightning to scatter the enemy. God is fighting on his behalf. He's asking God to do something on his behalf. He follows up in verse 6 and he asks God to shoot out arrows. He wants God to destroy his enemy. And the question tonight is, if God is, an, is your enemy, who can stand against the power of God? And, and this is what the psalmist wants. He says, God, I want you to fight on my behalf. I want you to send out your arrows. I want you to scatter the enemy. I want you uh, to, to show your great power so that I'll know that you are the one who is fighting for me. Lots of illustrations of this, aren't there, in the scriptures? Lots of illustrations of how God defended his people. I Think back to what it must have been like when the children of Israel stood next to the Red Sea and there was nowhere to go. The armies of Pharaoh were behind them. The Red Sea was in front of them and the people were in dismay and they asked Moses, did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? And God provided. God told Moses to use his staff and to part the waters and the waters rolled back and the people of God went across. And then in that moment, God took the cloud away and Pharaoh and his army could see there they went and they followed after them. And then God allowed the waters to come back over and destroyed the greatest army on the face of the earth. And the people of God didn't have to lift a sword. They didn't have to fight at all because it was God's battle. You see, God is able to do this on behalf of his people. And this is what David wanted. He wanted God to evidence his power. He wanted God to intervene in his life. He asked God in verse number 7, Send thine hand from above. Rid me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of strange children. You get the picture in verse 7 of a great strong hand reaching down and grabbing a hold of David and lifting him out of that place of peril, bringing him to a place of safety, a place of protection, a place where he was set aside, where God would keep him. And that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted God to deliver him, for God to work on his behalf. He says, God, deliver me out of great waters 
the picture of these great waters as he's thinking about being in, if, if you could picture it like being out in the middle of the ocean, a castaway, and you're there, you, there's no way that you can, be, can rescue yourself, there's no way that you're going to swim to land, you're just out there bobbing in the water, that's the description that he has, and he says, Lord, I need you to deliver me from these great waters. What were these great waters that he was talking about? The great waters, he says, are the hand of strange children. And what he's speaking about, most likely, at least for David, was the enemy of the Philistines, the enemy of the people of God that was coming against their land. But when he speaks about strange children, you understand that the application or the idea is those who are estranged from God, those who want nothing to do with God, who then align themselves against the people of God. And David is crying out. He's saying, God, I need you to deliver me. I need you to rescue me from this situation because it's like I'm out here in the great water and I can't rescue myself. I need you to deliver me. These strange children are marked by a mouth that speaketh vanity. So much, so much of what this world talks about is nothing but vanity, emptiness the entertainment of this world, the plans of this world, the aspirations of men today. We're going to do this. We're going to go there. We're going to solve this problem. We're going to fix this. We're going to take care of this. And it's all just a bunch of vanity. It's all emptiness. So much of it is, is based on man's very proud idea that he is the pinnacle of the evolutionary process. He's the top of the food chain, survival of the fittest, and he can solve any problem. He doesn't need God. Who is God? I can, I can disregard God. Sometimes I listen, and it's interesting to me, to listen to people who, who reject the very existence of God. And just listen to the arguments that they, that they spin and the things that they say. And what is that? It's vanity. Their mouth is speaking vanity. They're, they're talking about how God isn't real and God can't do anything. And then they say arrogant things like, you know, if God was real, then he could just strike me down right here. As if God is going to waste his time striking them down right there. Obviously he could. The truth is that... Their breath is in his fingers, but they don't recognize it. They speak vain words. Lots of vain things that men speak. Their bragging and arrogant words are nothing but empty assurances. Men tend to think far too highly of themselves. And then he speaks about them not only speaking in this way, their mouth speaketh vanity, But he says also their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Now, in the scriptures, the right hand speaks of authority and ability. The right hand is usually, that's for all of you right-handers, you should be saying amen. And all you left-handers could say, oh me. All right, but in the Bible, the right hand was the place of authority. This This was usually where the king wore his signet ring. This was where he carried his scepter of power. This was often seen as the the, the strong hand in warfare. 
And so he's speaking about these men with these vain words and their right hand is, is their ability and their authority. But he says their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. It sounds good. It sounds powerful. It sounds like they really have some things together. But then it's just like a wisp of smoke. And they don't actually have that ability. They don't actually have that authority because God is sovereign and God is supreme. It's a right hand of falsehood. Before we go on to the more encouraging part of the psalm, let me just point out to you that so much of our world, so much in our world, is nothing but a lie. It's deception. It's this idea that man can do anything, that man has this incredible power, that man can solve any problems. And do you understand that without God's provision, man has no ability, no power, can solve no problems. The only thing that we can do is discover the solutions that God has already given. But man doesn't appreciate that. Man thinks he's so, he's so ingenious and he's so smart and he's so powerful, and it's just not the case. The psalmist recognizes this, and so he asks God to come down. But then in verse 9 and 10, the tone of the psalm switches a little bit. And he says this in verse 9, I will sing a new song unto thee, O God. Upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto thee. A new song. Several times in the psalms, we find that a new song is sung. David has hope that God is going to deliver him, that God is going to continue to preserve him, that God is going to protect him and provide for him. And because of this, David wants to write, he wants to pen, and he wants to perform a new song for God. He wants to lift up this song of praise to God himself to express his gratefulness and his thankfulness to God for all that God has done. And certainly, songs are a fitting way for us to praise God. And new songs are an important distinction between the old songs and what God has now shown us and put in our heart. And there ought to be a difference between the songs of the people of God and the songs of the world. There ought to be a distinct difference between them because we are singing with a different purpose and with a changed heart. And so he says that he wants to express this new song of praise to God. Of interest to me is that this song would be performed or would be offered upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. A psaltery is some sort of a stringed instrument. An instrument of ten strings is obviously an instrument with ten strings. And so, I mean, the Bible is deep sometimes, isn't it? So David has these instruments, and he's intending to use these instruments in conjunction with this new song that he wants to sing to God. And I'll just say this about that. Some have imagined in the past that it is vain or wrong to use instruments in singing to God. And they've said we should only sing with our voices and not use instruments. 
And the Bible has an awful lot to say about instruments that you would have to discount in order to take that position. Now, God wants us to use those instruments in a way that is glorifying to Him, but certainly using an instrument is a valid way of expressing praise and worship to God. And evidently, David wanted to use not only his voice, but also this instrument. And then I'm reminded that to play an instrument requires some level of skill and practice and preparation. This is why I don't play an instrument, because evidently I do not have the skill, and I definitely have not practiced. My mom tried to teach me piano when I was a boy, and finally, I think I was probably about eight years old, she said, never mind, because I was much more interested in playing baseball than I was in playing the piano, and I think she finally gave up and let me have my way. But the truth is, what does it take to learn to play an instrument? Well, unless you're uniquely gifted, it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of pain for the parents as they listen and help their child through those lessons until they get to the place where they're skillful. But I suggest to you that if we're going to praise God, it is worth us investing the thought and the preparation to sing skillfully to the Lord. Sure, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Give the very best that you can. But if you're able, learn to play and sing skillfully, and God can receive worship from that. David was caught up with this thought, and he wanted to express his praise to God in this song. And evidently, the song that he's singing is in verse 10. It is he that giveth salvation unto kings, who delivereth David his servant from the hurtful sword. The theme of the song is that God saves and God delivers. Some of our favorite songs are songs about the salvation of the Lord, about the deliverance that God brings in our life. Not only the deliverance that he brings from sin, but the deliverance that he brings to us in times of trial. We think about how good God is to us and how he blesses us in our lives, and it brings a song to our heart. And so David is intending to sing, and he's expressing that intention in verses 9 and 10. Then in verses 11 through 14, there's an inquiry for blessing. He's asking God for some specific blessings. Notice in verse 11... He first of all pleads for God to deliver him from the enemy. In verse 11, we won't dwell upon it because he's repeating what was mentioned in verse 7. He says, Rid me and deliver me from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. He needs for God to deliver him. He's expressing that once again. He wants God to get the praise and the glory for this. He knows that apart from the deliverance of God, he has no means to overcome the enemy. But then notice in verse 12, he begins to plead with God for a bounty of blessing. He wants God, he desperately wants God to bless the nation. Not just him, but the entire nation. So he says in verse 12, Lord, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. God's blessing upon David would become a blessing upon not only the entire nation, but also upon future generations. One of the reasons that we can pray for God's blessing is because we desire 
for God's blessings to pass from us to the next generation and the next generation. You'll notice that he prays for the sons of that nation. And he asks that God would allow the sons of Israel to grow up as plants. The plants that he's picturing here are strong young trees that have promise for the future. They're going to bring forth fruit. As he's praying, he's picturing these strong young trees that are growing straight and tall, and they have a lot of promise. And he's saying, Lord, we need our young men to be these kind of plants. Oh, brethren, this is what we need in our church. We need our young men to be men of God. We need our young men to grow up with integrity, with with character, with a desire to serve God, with a yearning for God to take their life and use it for His glory. If the blessing could pass from us to the next generation, it would mean that our young men would be like these kind of trees. Trees planted by the rivers of water that bring forth their fruit in their season. May it be so. He goes on to pray for the daughters. Because the blessing is not just for the young men, it's also a blessing in the next generation upon the young women. And he says that he's desiring that the daughters would be as cornerstones, polished after the similitude of a palace. What he's describing is a stone of significance in a building. And this stone, this cornerstone, is what the building is built upon. It's, it's, uh, it's integral to the structural integrity of the building. And, and he's saying these daughters are not only uh, important and, and, and significant in the building, in the structure of the family, but also they're like polished stones. They're very beautiful. And he's describing this in poetic language, this idea that the daughters and their character is so important They're so important to the strength of the family. And you know, it's often been noted that if you want to see the direction of a nation, take an observation of the young women of that nation. And you'll learn something about where that nation is headed. I don't know about you, brethren, but as I look at the the current climate in our country, that's a distressing thought. But here in our church... Might we pray that God's blessing would extend to the next generation and that our young ladies would grow up with strong character, that they would have a beauty that comes from the inside, from the character of Christ, that would make them uh, uh, some young ladies that would contribute to the, to the strength of their family, to the integrity of our society, that God would use them uh, in such a way that they would be a picture of the gospel. And the psalmist is praying for sons and daughters and asking that God would bless them, that the, the blessing would extend to the next generation. This is a great way for us to pray. Even tonight, as we go to prayer, may we ask that God would give us these kinds of sons and daughters. And might I just point out to you that these daughters have a genuine beauty. This world is all about false beauty. It's all about fluffed up beauty. It's all about sprayed on beauty. It's all about put on beauty. But the kind of beauty that God values is beauty that comes from the inside and shines through to the outside. 
It's a beauty that cannot be tarnished by circumstances, a beauty that cannot be taken away by difficulties, a beauty that endures. And if I could say to our sons and our daughters, you should aspire for this. You should aspire for this kind of a blessing in your life so that in the next generation, God would use you to pass that blessing to your next generation. And may it be so. So David is crying out to the Lord and he's asking the Lord for this blessing on sons and daughters. And then he's praying for the entire nation, that the entire nation would be blessed with the provision of God. He describes it so powerfully and so eloquently in verse 13. He says that our garners may be full. Now the garner is like the seed barn. This is the area where when the farmers went and they brought in the crop and and then they had all of the crop that they brought in, whether it was corn or barley or wheat, and then that seed would be put into the garner. This was the place where it would be stored for use all throughout the year. And he says, we want our garners to be full. He goes on and describes that uh, he's praying that uh, their sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets. And the idea is that they would have such a plentiful and a, uh, uh, abundance of sheep, of lambs that are being born. Of course, these lambs were used in that society for food. They were used for clothing, the wool that they would provide. They were used for sacrifices in the temple. They were the measure of wealth. And so the psalmist is praying that God would bless them in a financial way, that God would bless them with abundance He's recognizing that all true abundance comes from God. He goes on and he asks God that our oxen may be strong to labor. And we don't use oxen to plow fields anymore. Praise the Lord. That's a blessing. We have Massey Ferguson's and things like that. But what he's asking for is blessing upon the business. He's asking for God to put his hand upon their labor and for God to enable them to to be strong, to bring forth strength. And then when he speaks about no breaking in or going out, he's asking for God not only to provide them for them, but also for God to preserve their wealth. He's asking for God to protect them from the thieves that would break in and the going out, the taking out of the abundance. He's asking for God to to keep those things for them and to to bless them in this way that there would be no complaining in our streets. Boy, that would be a blessing, wouldn't it? No complaining in our streets. And you know, when we ask God for His blessing, God can bless us in these ways. It's, It's entirely appropriate for us as the people of God to pray that God would bless our congregation in this way. That, that God would give us favor to excel in the pursuits that he gives us in this physical world, in the businesses that our members operate, that God would bless those businesses and that God would allow their business to be a blessing to others, that God would protect and would care for and provide for the, the physical needs that we have one with another so that we can be a blessing to others and, and pray that God would Just not give us anything to complain about. No complaining in our streets. And truthfully, when we think about how good God has been to us, we've got nothing to complain about, do we? No complaining in our streets. So he's asking for God's blessing. And then the refrain is found in verse 15. And it sums it all up. And that's why I titled the message tonight, Happy People. 
Happy is that people that is in such a case. What case? The case of blessing. The case of provision and protection from God. The people who recognize that God has been merciful to them. The people who see that God has bowed down, has condescended to them, is providing for their needs, and they recognize that God has been good to them. Happy is that people, and that word happy means they're blessed. They've been blessed by God. Then he repeats it, yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. If we have no seed, if we have no sheep, if we have no next generation, if we have what seems to be little to nothing in the way of this world, we still have God who is the Lord. And that can never be taken from us. And let me remind you tonight that if you have the Lord, if He is your God, happy, happy, happy is that people. Are you happy tonight? I hope that you are. Some of you were happy about love lifted me. The truth is, if you've experienced God's salvation, you've been blessed supremely by God. I suspect that you've gotten a whole lot more than just salvation, though. I'm suspecting that if you start looking at your life, thinking about sons and daughters and sheep and oxen and how God has cared and provided for your needs, I have a feeling that you and I should be pretty happy people because the God who is our Lord and all that he has done for us.